Uh, yeah, I wanted to go ahead and say this, though. I'm preaching this week. Pastor Chris, he's gone. He's preaching at a church in Linwood, and so I have the privilege of covering the pulpit this week. Um, not this Sunday, but next Sunday is October 31st, and that is, of course, Halloween. However, if you're a, a raging Protestant, then it's also the day we celebrate as Reformation Day. It's the day that really makes us distinct as Protestants as opposed to Catholics or Eastern Orthodox. And really what that day was is this monk named Martin Luther in Germany in 1517 nailing 95 theses against the door of Wittenberg, his problems that he had against the church. And one of the things that he brought up was this, how can people be made right with God? That's a good question, right? How could people be reconciled to God? Because for what it was in the church in that day Martin Luther was dealing with is that it was kind of up in limbo whether you were a Christian or not. Hey, you, you'll do some good things, and yeah, you might profess faith in Jesus, but we don't really know. Could be damned, could be righteous. Hope it turns out well for you. And so really, you had it, people that were just left in suspense, people that worked incredibly hard, people that were just down in the dirt, and they didn't have any knowledge of, man, am I saved or not? And so today we're going to be talking about the righteousness of God, Jesus may, namely being our righteousness. And if you've got a Bible, it's in Romans chapter 3 today. And let me give you my thesis for this. My thesis is that I truly believe with all of my heart that this doctrine of Jesus being our righteousness is the most freeing doctrine to the human soul in this world. I don't think there's anything that comes close to it to free the human soul, to give life to dead people, and to change societies. And so, like I said, Romans 3 is where we're going to be today. And here's where I want to go, okay? Here's how I'm going to set it up. I, I know that it's easy to take shots at the American church and the Western church for things that they, she doesn't do well, and there's a lot of them, but there's a lot of things she does do well. But one of the issues that I have with the church is this. We in the Western church, in the American church, we've made this distinction between sacred and secular. You could say, another way of saying that would be Christian and non-Christian. I'm reminded of uh, Lecrae, who's a rapper, and he has a story prior to being a Christian where he's in a car with one of his friends, and they're driving down the streets in Houston or something, listening to music that I think has bad words in it, I don't know. And uh, anyways, they're driving by a church, and his friend turns the radio down, and he says, bro, what are you doing? And he says, dude, it's a church. Have some respect. And it's like, man, like, that's the idea, right? That's the idea right there where it's like, oh, no, the church is a, a sacred place. Maybe the curb is kind of sacred, 50-50, but then on the road, no, it's secular, right? And now how this permeates church, how this permeates itself outside of our church walls into the culture is this. It's where we have Christian music and non-Christian music. Christian movies and non-Christian movies. Christian counselors and non-Christian counselors. Christian nations and non-Christian nations. Now, let me say this. That's not all bad, right? There might still be some good in this. My biggest issue with this type of thinking is this, though. My biggest issue is that none of this is found in the Bible. None of this is how the apostles or the early church fathers thought. I feel like I quote this almost every time I'm up here on the stage, but I think it's important to recognize it. Matthew 28, after Jesus' resurrection, he gives this great commission. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples. Okay? Jesus doesn't say, Okay, I've got authority over Christians. Now go do something. 
I've got authority only over Jerusalem, okay? Now try to expand my, my, uh, my authority. No, no. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. And this means, church, it all belongs to him. This means there's never a distinction in the apostles, in the Bible, or in the early church's mind of this sacred versus secular divide. You get what I'm saying? Uh, this is important. This is why, church, the, the apostles gave their lives. This is why they died. This is why you have the apostle Paul who's beheaded. This is why you have Peter who's hung on a cross upside down. This is why you have the apostle John who's boiled in oil and then abandoned to an island of Patmos to die. They couldn't go ahead and say in their heart, yeah, Caesar's Lord of the nation, but Jesus is Lord of my heart. No, no, no. They were too convinced, too compelled, too moved to say that. They believed wholeheartedly, no, Jesus is Lord over everything. And because he's Lord over everything, everything must submit to him. And so, the result was this. They were ferocious in their evangelism and in their proclamation of Jesus being Lord. Now, because of this, though, church, what happened? Well, what happened was the nations changed. And I'd say they changed for the better. They change. And you say, okay, well, how do nations change? And I think nations change by individuals' hearts being changed. And how are individuals' hearts changed? And I think they're changed by being made righteous. And how are people made righteous? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's what we're talking about today. So, Romans 3. Here's what we're going to do. Here's a quick definition of righteousness, right? Because you've probably heard of righteousness described this way. Righteousness means that you're right before God. And that's true, and that's right, and that's good. Another definition, though, I think will really help us, and I think it really applies to the book of Romans, is this. Conformity to a certain set of expectations. And if that's true of righteousness, that means everybody is desiring righteousness. So, here's where we're going to be. Romans 3, the book of Romans, the context of the book is this. Paul is writing to a church that is disunified right now, and he's writing to them that they would be unified. This is a church made up of Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles being anyone that's not a Jew. And he's writing to them because the disunity they're facing is this. The Jews are coming to the Gentiles and they're saying, hey, if you're going to be a true Christian, it's Jesus plus something. It's Jesus plus something equals you being righteous. And so the Jews are coming to the Gentiles saying, hey, if you want to be a true Christian, you've got to be circumcised. Gentiles are saying, what now? I got to do what? If you're going to be a true Christian, you've got to be kosher. If you're going to be a true Christian, then you've got to take a Sabbath. And so the Gentiles, they're wrestling with this. They're dealing with this. And the, the, the Jews, they're pushing this on the Gentiles. And so Paul does this in order to unify the church. I think it's beautiful. Romans chapter 1, he says this. All nations are under the wrath of God. All nations are under the wrath of God, and they're under the wrath of God because they suppress the truth of God. They don't want to know God. They suppress the truth of God, and because of this, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools as they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the glory of little creatures. All nations are under the wrath of God. That's how he starts Romans 1. Romans 2, then, comes along. And let me say this, Jews would have heard Romans 1, and they would have said, yeah, you preach it, Paul. You tell them. They're horrible. They're wicked people. We're chosen people. We're, we're a remnant. We've been pulled out from the nations. And Paul says, not so quick. 
He says, you who have the law and judge others, don't you judge yourself? He says, you tell others not to commit adultery, don't you commit adultery? You tell others not to steal, don't you steal? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law because of your hard and impenitent hearts, therefore you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of judgment. Right? This is Paul's plan of bringing unity to the church. He's giving a fair playing field right off the bat. So it's not just Gentiles that are condemned. It is also the Jew that is condemned. It's not just the lawless and the lawbreaker that is condemned, but it's also the legalist who thinks that if I do the right things and I act the right way, therefore I'll be righteous before God. And that's where we're at. Romans 3, verses 9. We'll look at verses 9 through 18. Paul says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Right? Romans 1, Romans 2. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat, it's an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I know you're probably thinking this morning, I'm so thrilled I came to church today, Curtis. Thank you for telling me what a wretch I am. It gets better, so stick with me on this, all right? Uh, this selection of verses and phrases, though, all coming from the Old Testament, uh, possibly, scholars think, could have been a popular saying that rabbis had. Now, if that's the case, I think it's kind of funny. It's like the Apostle Paul, in a very humorous way, he's going to the Jews and he's saying, hey, this is what your own people are saying about you. You're really not as great as you think you are, right? It's breaking them down. So that's not, we don't know that for certain. What we do know for certain is this, though. Paul is using these verses as the cherry on top to complete his case that everyone stands condemned before God, right? Did you see the repetition of no one in all in those couple first verses? Look at it again. Verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside, no one does good, not even one. What's he doing here? He's showing that everyone is condemned. It's not just condemning the Jews or the Gentiles, but everyone. I think this is so interesting, church. If his aim is really to unite the church, why is he doing this? Why is he doing this? Why is he saying everyone's condemned? Why is he saying everyone's guilty if his plan is to unite the church? Think about this. How are you going to unite a church? How are you going to unite people? Right? You're going to throw like a big Baptist potluck, right? Perhaps ha have some drinks as well. People can gather around that, certainly. Why is Paul doing this? I think Paul, if he was here today and he had a message for us from this text, I think the Apostle Paul would say this. Hey, for those of you that worship Jesus, just so you know, you're not better than anyone else. You're not better than anyone else. There, there's no such thing as a first-class and second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, right? And, and we often do this, don't we? The kingdom of God doesn't have first-class and second-class citizens, but here on earth, oh yeah, big time there is. 
We'll go ahead and we'll find people that are next to us or on par with us to see how well we're doing to judge ourselves. Perhaps a better word is to justify ourselves to see how well we're doing in life. Right? Why do we do this? Why do we play this us versus them game? I think the reason is this from this text. We're trying to make ourselves righteous. We're trying to conform to a certain set of standards and expectations and to say, oh yeah, I'm right. I'm in the good. Right? Because what was it for the Jews? For the Jews, it was about conforming to their standards in order to be right. And church, we do this sometimes, don't we? We do this sometimes, where it's Jesus plus something means that you're right, that you're the, in the in, isn't it? I mean, we were just going through a men's study, and it was kind of uncovered where the book kind of talked like this, where it was Jesus plus something means that you're righteous. And so, hey, if you're a single guy, then you should get married. And if you're married, then you should probably have kids. And if you have kids, then they should probably be homeschooled. Or if you have kids, they should be disciplined this way. And we add on and on and on, making it Jesus plus something makes me righteous. Now, just so we're clear, church, they're all good things. All good things that I just brought up there, right? But if this is the standard for how we're made right before God, there's catastrophic consequences. It's not only disastrous, but inevitably it will lead to our damnation. This is a false gospel. This is an antichrist, if you will. It's not good. Won't save people. Won't redeem any societies. And so here's how I kind of think about it, right? We talk about horizontal versus vertical every now and then. If I'm comparing myself horizontally to someone, I might become really prideful. But if I'm aiming at something greater vertically, naming God, my posture should be one of humility, right? I'll give you an example. So uh, do all of you guys know who Russell Wilson is? Do I need to say this in Washington State? Show of hands. Everyone knows this? I'm always worried with, uh, with sports analogies to see who knows this or not. Suppose me and Russell Wilson have a jumping contest to see who can jump the highest. I'm going to smoke that little man. You understand me? I'm going to beat him so good. Good. Some of you laugh, right? You laugh. Why? Of course I'm not going to win. Man to man, he's way better than me, right? All right. Not horizontal, vertically. We're aiming at something greater, though. We're aiming at the moon. First one to jump to the moon wins. We both fall incredibly short. It doesn't matter that he's got a foot or two on me when he jumps, all right? He's not going to make it. Let me give you another analogy, all right? I heard uh, R.C. Sproul, the great theologian reformer, give this a couple years ago, and I really appreciate it. He says, let's get the worst person on stage and then also someone from Christianity that we really like, okay? He says, worst person we can possibly think of, Adolf Hitler, right? You know a conversation goes south when Hitler gets brought up. But he brings up a guy, that guy's Hitler, all right? And then also we got the Apostle Paul up on stage, right? We'll go ahead and use the Apostle Paul. He's not that bad, all right? Man to man, who's better? Obviously the Apostle Paul, right? If I'm choosing bunk bed partners, I want the Apostle Paul. I don't want Adolf Hitler. Vertically, before God, who's better? Both the Apostle Paul, both Adolf Hitler, are guilty sinners before a holy God. You see how that works. The field becomes flat. It becomes plain when we look at God. So here's how it manifests itself in our life, church. It's not just conservative versus liberal. All conservatives are condemned. All liberals are condemned. All black people are condemned. 
All white people are condemned. All rich people are condemned. And all poor people are condemned. I think if the Apostle Paul was here with us today, he would go ahead and say, hey, you're not better than anyone else. We're continuing on verses 19 through 20. And Paul says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Uh, the language in these verses is very judicial, right? It's a picture that Paul gives us of a courtroom, God being the judge, if you will. And uh, Paul says that everyone who is under the law, their mouths will be stopped, right? So all of humanity will go before God someday and their mouths will be stopped. The Greek for this literally means apologyless. You can't pass the buck with God. You can't say, well, there was something in my life that was going on, or it was, it was due to circumstances. No, no, no. You are responsible for your life, for your sin before God. So church, I want you to picture this. We don't believe that this is theoretical. We really believe at the end of your life, this is what's going to happen. You will go before the throne of God to give an account for your life. What's that going to be like? What are you going to say? What Paul does here and what we're doing right now, this practice, is really a litmus test, if you will, to see how well we understand the gospel. When we go before the throne of God, we see him for the first time, and we give an account for our life, are we going to try to justify ourselves? Are we going to go ahead and say, well, you know, God, I did these good things, and I really did this, and I went to church, and I gave the church, and I served the poor, and I did all these really good things, and, and all these bad things over here. I didn't do this, Jesus. I didn't do this. And hey, I wasn't Hitler, right? I wasn't Hitler, so that's got to count for something. Are you going to try to justify yourself? I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 7 where he says there will be people that come to him the, the end of days and they'll say, Jesus, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do this and do that in your name? And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. And he cast them into outer darkness. The issue is this, church. The issue is our standard of righteousness versus God's standard of righteousness. Our standard of righteousness being, well, I conform to this certain set of expectations. I did the right things. Therefore, I'm righteous. And God's saying, no, that's not how you're made righteous. In fact, the Apostle Paul with verse 20, just to be really clear, just to put the cap on top of Romans 1, 2, and 3, he says this, just so we're clear, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. The Apostle Paul, he's saying this. He's saying the law was meant to be a tutor in your life. The law was meant to show you that you were a sinner. The law was meant to show you that when you fail it, yeah, you don't live up to God's standards and expectations. The law is meant to show us this. And church, it's at this point here in the text where Paul kind of strips us of any self-hope that we might have breaks us down to being hopeless here that he gives us the good news of the gospel. And it's at that point that we can receive it. Verses 21 through 25a, we'll go ahead and take a look at those. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Stories changed, stories shifted. Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. A lot of big words and a lot of things that we'll be talking about right there. Really, though, the question we've been dealing with, right? How can you be made righteous? How are you made righteous? You're made righteous through faith in Christ alone. That's what Paul gives us here. Uh, Church, I want us to see, I want us to understand, and I even want us to feel how freeing this is to the human soul. The, The freedom to receive by faith to believe and to trust that what Jesus has done for you and not to work for your righteousness before God, right? It's not Jesus plus something equals righteousness. It is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so church, when Jesus declares it is finished, do we really believe that he meant that? Do we come to the cross of Jesus where Jesus says, hey, it's finished, and we say, hey, Jesus, hey, I got this, though, as well. I can bring this, okay? No. No, if Jesus declared it is finished, it's really a matter of whether we believe it or not, and that will reorient how we live our lives. And you can say to me, Curtis, why is this such a big deal? So what? Well, I want us to look at this. Romans 5, verse 19 The Apostle Paul, he does this in this chapter where he says, Hey, there's a head of the human race, Adam. And there's a head of the new race, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And he says this in Romans 5, verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, Jesus' righteousness in our place for our sins, the many will be made righteous. Church, we need to understand this, that what Jesus did from his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension is that he's creating a new world. He's restoring the Garden of Eden. His plan is not just to vacuum you out of this world. I say this, I think, almost every week, because I believe it. That's why. I'll tell you this, church. Looking at these verses, what a huge pet peeve of mine personally is when people quote just Romans 3.23, right? Really just to tell you how big of a sinner you are. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Wah, wah, right? It's so depressing. You get your nose in the text and you see what? You see it's not a sin, it's a period, it's a comma. Look, verse 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, comma, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Period. You understand that? It's not just for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't get up here on Sundays to preach and say, well, Jesus died on the cross. Have a good week. Uh, We don't do that. No, we give you the good message of the gospel. Jesus is alive now. And so it doesn't just end with, hey, you're a sinner, right? Because here's the reality. Hey, you do sin and fall short daily. You do do this daily. Hey, yeah, you do fail God's standard daily. And guess what? You are completely justified before God. In the courtroom with God, completely pardoned from all your sins, from all your wrongdoings. All of your sin, your failures, your brokenness, your mess has been given to Jesus. 
And all of Jesus' perfection and work has been given to you, to where you've been redeemed. And that word redeemed, it literally means you've been bought out of slavery. It means that you're free. You're no longer a slave to this world. You have a new nature. You're a new creation. Right? Now, church, this is good news. Would you give that to me? Is this good news? If this is good news, then what does it mean for us today? What does it mean for us today? I told you a little bit at the beginning about how, what it meant for Martin Luther and the church in his day, right? People had no idea whether they were saved or not. And so when Martin Luther goes and he nails the 95 Theses up there and he talks about the righteousness of God apart from the law, it freed people up to where they said, oh man, I can know whether I'm saved or not. I, I have a freedom to where I'm no longer in this grips or in this limbo of unknown. Really what we're asking is this, what are the outworkings of being made righteous? How does this play itself out into our lives? Because here's the reality, right? Uh, I didn't come up with it, but a man named Ray Ortland did. It's gospel proclamation and gospel culture. Gospel proclamation from the pulpit every Sunday or in your fellowship groups or with friends, you're proclaiming the gospel, right? That's a good thing. We want to remind each other of what the gospel is, right? We're prone to forget it every week, and that's why we're always adding things to the gospel. So we need to be reminded of it. But gospel proclamation is us proclaiming the gospel. But then gospel practice is this. How do you practice what you believe? There was a picture uh, from the 1950s, I think it's 1950s, sometime around then, over in the south. And it was a picture from uh, a church and a stage, and there's a banner above the stage, and it says, Jesus saves. That's gospel proclamation. Would you give that to me, church? I think that's gospel proclamation. Sounds right. On the stage was a bunch of Ku Klux Klan members right? Gospel, what's the gospel proclamation? Jesus saves. What's the culture say? Jesus only saves white people. So we got to be incredibly careful that we get this right, where we're not only proclaiming the gospel, but then our practices line up with what the gospel says. And so I have three things that come to mind from this text. It's not exhaustive. I'm sure there could be more. Um, I'll let Matt preach next week, and Matt can tell you more of them. First one's this. Outworkings of being made righteous. You've been saved by grace. You've been saved by grace. Uh, we've been talking about the heart being changed, right? Heart being changed, heart being transformed. This goes all the way back to Ezekiel 36, where the prophet Ezekiel is talking with Jesus, and Jesus is saying to him, Ezekiel, I'm going to take your heart and your calloused heart. I'm going to take that, and I'm going to give you a new heart, heart of flesh, heart with new desires, a heart with new attitudes to love and to serve me. And he says, along with that new heart I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you my spirit within you. So now it's no longer that you just have new desires, but now you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you so that you can carry out those desires. And yeah, church, you're going to fail. Yeah, you're not going to do it perfectly. Yeah, you're going to fall. But now you have the power to carry them out by God's grace. So Ezekiel 36, you've been given a new heart. You've been given the spirit of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 even says this. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, right? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what does it mean, church, that you've been given a new heart, a new identity? It means this. It means you didn't earn it. It means you didn't earn it. It means that you've been saved from the pit. That's the language of Psalm 103. It even kind of harkens back to, to Joseph when his brothers threw him in a pit and he was pulled back out. You've been saved from the pit. What that means is this. You've been, by God's grace, hadn't done anything, didn't deserve it, were pulled out, saved from the pit, 
new heart, new spirit, new desires, new nature. You don't go back to the pit and say, what's wrong with you people? Get your act together. Pull yourselves up, all right? Start taking on some responsibility. You don't do that. Church, if you've been saved by grace, then your posture, my posture, our posture as a church should be the same towards others as Jesus' posture towards us, which is love. Which is love. You know, Jesus says that people are going to know that we're his disciples for, by the love we have for one another. And I think it's often the case that we're known for our doctrine or we're known for what we don't agree with rather than our love for one another, which is a real shame. Uh, I got a story with uh, uh, Ruth and I. We were over at a wedding this summer in Washougal, Washington. It's kind of on the border of, of Oregon. And anyways, we're there for Sunday evening for a wedding. And then Monday, we just kind of spent all day in Portland kind of having a fun just Portland day, you know. Anyways, we got lunch at one place, and then as we're walking out, a homeless person uh, asks me if I can buy him a gallon of milk. I was really, I was ticked off about this. I'm on vacation, you know, and of course Portland's going to have homeless, right? And I'm just having a pity party. And uh, he wants me to buy him a gallon of milk, so I go into the store, and he's just following right behind me, breathing down my neck, and I'm just like so tense, and I'm ticked off with this guy that he's with me. So anyways, I buy him this gallon of milk. We get outside the store, and I say, hey, can I pray for you? And uh, I'm not proud of it, but I prayed for this guy, and I prayed such a prideful prayer. I was kind of praying that, like, hey, like, I'm praying to God, but I'm also kind of praying to you, that kind of prayer. Like, I want you to listen to what I'm saying because I'm trying to tell you to get your life together. It was a disgusting prayer. It really was. I was praying to God, God, I pray that you'd convict him. I pray you'd get his life together. I pray you'd help him. It was garbage, absolute garbage. Anyways, I say Amen. And then he goes ahead and he starts praying. And he says, God, thank you that you saved a sinner like me. Amen. Absolutely gutted me. Absolutely gutted me. Uh, That homeless man understood grace better than I possibly did. Because what was I doing? I was coming to this homeless guy with Jesus plus something means you're right. Jesus plus you not being homeless. Jesus plus you having your act together. Jesus plus you not being addicted. Jesus plus whatever it might be. And he understood, I don't deserve any of this. I am saved by grace alone. I went into that prayer trying to teach this guy something. That guy ended up teaching me in the end of it. It also reminds me of the parable that Jesus has of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke 18. Jesus says that this is a parable for those who trust in themselves that they're righteous and treat others with contempt. Uh, That was totally me, totally me. And he says, a Pharisee and a tax collector to go into a temple to pray. And the Pharisee, and he starts praying, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you I'm not homeless. I thank you I'm not addicted. I thank you I'm not a uh, tax collector. I thank you I'm not a uh, prostitute. I give of all I have, and I'm really generous. And he's going on about all the things he does. Really good at what he does, right? And then the tax collector, he's there praying as well, and it says that he's so burdened by his sin, he won't even lift his head to heaven, but he's got his head down, he's beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, that man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself is going to be exalted. Church, you've been saved by grace. You've been saved by grace. You didn't add a single darn thing to your salvation. It was a gift from God. 
Church, what does it mean that you've been saved by grace? How does that permeate your life? How does that change how you interact with other people? One of the outworkings that you've been saved by grace, the second is this, that you have the freedom to be a, a sinner and kill sin. You have the freedom to be a sinner and kill sin. Uh, years ago, we had a, an equipped men's cohort where we'd go with just a group of guys throughout a school year, and we'd read books, and the books were placed very strategically for the ones you'd be going through. And so the first book that they gave us was a book on identity. So making sure that you're secure in your identity in Christ, that you know your identity in Christ. And the book that followed after that was a book on killing sin. And the reason for it was this. Once you're secure in your identity that you did nothing to earn it, grace, right? You can do nothing to get rid of it because you didn't save yourself. Jesus saved you. The result is twofold. The result is twofold. First off, you have the freedom to be a sinner, let me tell you what I don't mean by that, okay? I don't mean that your sins don't matter, that there's no issues or consequences with your sin. No, no, sin is the thing that separates God and man. Sin is the thing that isolates people from one another. Sin is such a big deal that Jesus, the Son of God, died for it. So sin really matters. What I am talking about, though, is this. Being, having the freedom to be a sinner means you don't have to pretend that you have your life together and you can show your sin, right? You don't have to pretend that you got your life together. I rejoice, church, in letting you know our church is so jacked up. We're so screwed up. That's why I'm up on stage this morning, right? We're a messed up group here. We're not a perfect church. At this church, we've got people that struggle with addiction, struggle with pornography, have had DUIs, have dealt with adultery, have dealt with all these different sins. And by God's grace, Jesus says, hey, give it to me. Jesus says, I want that. And hopefully, church, by God's grace, our church can be a place where people can feel the forgiveness that they've received from Christ. That this church can be a place that helps people grow into wholeness. That's what it means. That's what it means to have the freedom to be a sinner. For, for those of you that invite people into your home from this church, for those of you that are fellowship group leaders or part of this church, a question we really need to consider is this. Is this a church where we are allowed to be sinners or do we need to pretend that we have it all together? Is this a grace-based church or is this a Jesus plus works church? Now let me say this. Uh, if you come to my fellowship group, Thursday nights, 7 p.m., not this week, next week, just got to plug it. Uh, if, if you come to my group and you're just, everything's going well. Hey, how are you doing? Things are great. Oh, I'm blessed. I'm blessed, brother. Praise God. I'm not going to bark on you or anything. Praise God that things are going well. I want my, my fellowship group, and I want this church to be a place, though, where, hey, if you're going really, if things are going really well, fantastic. Praise God. But when things are going really bad and life sucks, hey, there's still a place for you. Uh, we need to be a church, church, that rejoices with those who rejoice and weeps with those who weep. I want you to hear this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't know who he was, he was a, a, a pastor and theologian and professor and from Germany, and during World War II, actually, he was teaching at a U.S. seminary, but then as his fellow men were suffering in Germany, he decided to go back because he felt guilty about it. And so he went back to Germany and inevitably lost his life to the Nazis. 
Anyways, he's got this long quote, though, and I want to share with you guys. He says this, The most experienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Jesus. The greatest psychological insight, ability, and experience cannot grasp this one thing, what sin is. Worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failures are, but it does not know the godlessness of man. And so it also does not know that man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. Only the Christian knows this. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. In the presence of a Christian brother, I can dare be a sinner. The psychiatrist must first search my heart, and yet he never plumbs its ultimate depth. And the Christian brother knows that when I come to him, here is a sinner like myself, a godless man who wants to confess and yearns for God's forgiveness. The psychiatrist, he views me as if there was no God, and the brother views me as if I am before the judging and merciful God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Ah, it's a good quote, right? Freedom to be a sinner. My hope for you, church, is this, that you'd feel the freedom to share your sins, to confess your sins. And let me say this, I think there's wisdom in sharing your sins with people that you trust, people that can help you. I think there's great wisdom in that, not just sharing them freely, just kind of, you know, machine gunning it out there. But I I want this to happen. I want this to happen where you share your sins, and as the person's listening, they're thinking, man, this person is so messed up. They sound just like me. They sound just like me. Church, you have the freedom to be a sinner. The second thing is this, though. You have the freedom to kill your sin. You have the freedom to kill your sin. You say, well, well, how is that possible? And it's possible by this. You die to yourself and your sinful desires. I think of a John Owen, an old Puritan. He has this famous quote where he says, hey, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So it's, it's certainly an active work, right? Galatians 2 verse 20, though, really gives some good clarity in this. And he says, I have been crucified with Christ. This is the Apostle Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? So what's he doing? He's doing gospel proclamation and then gospel culture. So what's the gospel he's proclaiming? Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. And how does that work itself out in his life? Oh, when Jesus died, I died. That old man, he's dead. When Jesus rose, a new man rose. That's how it manifests itself into his life. There's a story of um, Augustine, and I've quoted Augustine quite a few times from the stage before, but there's an old story of Augustine. I think he lived around the 400 ADs. And uh, there's an old story with him, though, where prior to being a Christian, he was a hedonist, right? He just pursued everything his stomach desired. And part of his story was after he became a Christian and he changed his life, he was walking through a town and a prostitute saw him. And they said, oh, well, this is Augustine. Like, Augustine and I usually have a good time together. I'm going to go talk to him. And she goes to him and she says, Augustine, Augustine, how are you? And he says, I'm well. And he keeps walking. And she says, well, that's weird. Maybe he didn't recognize that it was me, you know? And so she chases after him and she says, Augustine, Augustine, don't you remember it is I? And he says, oh, yes, I know, but it is not I. And what that story is saying is this. Augustine's saying, that old Augustine you knew, he's dead. His desires, his life, it's, it's in the past. He's a new man 
in Christ. And so, church, Jesus so attaches himself to you and to me to where he's never going to leave us nor forsake us. That's what this verse is saying. And the result of that ought to be we can kill sin freely and we can die to ourselves. Why can we die to ourselves? Because Jesus gives life that's worth the loss of our own. Martin Luther, he says this based upon this verse. I honestly could have just read this quote and saved you a couple minutes, but sorry about it. Martin Luther said this, though, on this verse, and he said, By faith you are so cemented to Christ, and he and you are as one person, which cannot be separated, but remains attached forever. And the sinner declares, I am as Christ. And Christ in turn says, And I am as this sinner who is attached to me, and I to him. For by faith we are joined together into one flesh and one bone. Church, this morning, Christ is so attached to you that you can not only admit your sin freely, but you can kill your sin too. Why? He's not going anywhere, that's why. So one of the final things I get as far as the outworkings of what it means to be made righteous is this. Even if your own conscience condemns you, God has the final say, not your feelings. Even if your own conscience condemns you, God has the final say, not your feelings. So let me just kind of unpack that really quickly, right? I really believe the conscience is a gift from God to help you navigate in life, to do right and wrong. I also think your feelings and emotions are important. But at the end of the day, for the Christian, the ultimate authority over us is God's Word, not our feelings, not our emotions, not our appetite. So we look at these final verses that Paul has for us in this section, verses 25 through 26, and we see what he says. Verse 25, he says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation, big word, we'll look at that, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Uh, Paul, he's saying this. He's saying Jesus is not only our righteousness, he's not only our only hope for being made right with God, and our only hope of restoration in this world. Rather, though, God's plan is so specific that Jesus is not only the just, but he also justifies, right? What's Paul saying here, right? It's kind of clunky to us. What's he saying? He's saying this, God alone is the judge who condemns and pardons. God alone is the judge who condemns and pardons. Praise God for that, right, church? God is the judge who not only pardons your sin, but he forgets your sin. You get that? He forgets your sin. Psalm 103 talks about this, where it says, it casts his sin as far as the east is from the west. So far does he remove our sins from us. God, our judge, forgets our sins. So, church, this morning, just a quick question. If you're plagued by your past, God has forgotten it. I want you to know that, okay? Hold on to that. God has forgotten it. And if you're still holding on to your past and you can't let go of it, you need to ask the question, why? Why is that? Satan plagues you because of your past, but not God. God's let go of it. I think of Howell Harris. He wrote this hymn. He was an old Welsh minister in the 1700s, and he says, Well may the accuser roar of things that I have done. I know them all and thousands more, but the Lord, he knows none. And if you hear what he's saying in that 
in that, in that song, in that, in that hymn, he's saying this, God, our ultimate judge over the entire universe has forgotten our sins. And if that's really the ultimate judge of the entire universe, then let's base our feelings and our emotions off of that. Off of that. God, our judge, he forgets our sin, but he also takes away our sin. He takes away our sin. One day, the checks and balances will all line up. Praise God for that. God alone is the one who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Yes and amen to that. But for those who trust in Jesus, who have put their faith in Jesus, Jesus says to you and to me, yes, vengeance is mine, but I have paid. Vengeance is mine, but I have paid. And you say, well, how so? That word propitiation, it means to absorb wrath. And we think about what, right? Well, we looked at Romans 1 and 2 and 3, the, the wrath of God that rightly you and I deserve. Jesus takes it all. Jesus takes it all. This is why we sing Jesus has paid for it all. So church, this morning when your conscience condemns you, know this, Jesus on the cross has the final say, not your feelings. And so here's the conclusion, right? Here's where we're going to go and conclude. What's God's vision of transformation for societies? I'm sure you've got your own vision of what a transformed society looks like. I kind of uh, am struggling with always thinking of a transformed, beautiful society. It looks like Kirkland, Washington, uh, but it's too rich, and Ruth and I can't afford it. Uh, But here's God's vision of transformation, all right? Isaiah 61, this is actually the chapter head says the year of the Lord's favor, which is what Jesus quotes at the very beginning of his ministry. So this is what's on Jesus' mind as well, all right? In the last two verses of this, he says this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Hear this. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. God's vision of transformation is global. God's vision of transformation is global, where there's people from all parts of the world that are clothed in righteousness and are sprouting up among the nations. That's the vision or the picture that he gives us here. And so we go back to what we started with, how are nations changed? Nations are changed when hearts are changed. And how are hearts changed? Hearts are changed when people are made righteous. And how are people made righteous? People are made righteous by putting their faith in Jesus. Church, I am not convinced. I'm not convinced that, um, that policies or picketing or protesting is what changes a human heart. I'm not convinced of it. I really believe policies are important. Don't get me wrong. I think it's part of God's plan for redemption and restoration for this world. So I think it's significant, but I don't think it changes the heart of man. And you think about even what we're looking at, right, with Paul talking to the church of Rome. When Paul's in Rome, he didn't write the letter when he was in Rome, but when Paul was in Rome, Paul wasn't going to the Colosseum protesting where women and children were being murdered or when Christians were being murdered. You know, he's not out front with protesting saying, what do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. He's not doing that. No, Paul's got bigger plans. And Paul's bigger plans is that he's trying to change the hearts, and he's trying to change the nation. So what does he do? He goes ahead and he starts planting churches. 
He starts making disciples. And within 200 years after Paul starts planting churches around Rome, the Colosseum's completely done. Not a place where people are slaughtered anymore. A couple thousand years later, where we're at, the Colosseum's nothing but a heap of ruins and the church is doing just fine, right? Church is doing just fine. Uh, I'll share this last story with you. One of my favorite preachers ever is a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a uh, was a pr- trained doctor, actually, and then got saved and then went into the ministry in, uh, in London and in Wales in the uh, 1900s. Anyways, he got a job preaching in Wales, and then after that, he got a job preaching at a church called Westminster Chapel, which is just down the street from the Queen's Palace, in 1939, beginning of World War II, for those of you that don't know that date, beginning of World War II. Actually, there was one event where he's preaching an evening service, and a bomb lands on the other side of the street, and the whole building shakes, and dust lands on his shoulders, and everyone's just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. And as someone comes up, brushes the dust off his shoulders, and then he continues preaching. It's such a boss move. I love it so much. But what he said was this. He said, people keep talking about when World War II is over. Oh, when the war's over, then things will be back to normal. Oh, when the war's over, then things will be good. Oh, when the war's over, then things will be right. And he said, No. No. War's a bad thing, but war will come and go, and the heart of man will still stay the same. And church, I say the same thing for us today. I can't wait for when coronavirus is not a conversation. Can't wait for when critical race theory is not a topic of conversation. Can't wait for when all of these things change. But how the nations change is when the heart of man changes. And the heart of man doesn't change when just bad circumstances go away. No, that needs to be made righteous by God. That is how the world changes. Let's pray.